back up to the last verse of chapter 2. Since uh, chapter 3 opens with, with the word for, I believe, it opens with the word for, so he's looking back, he's explaining something. Chapter 2 says, verse 22, in him, that is in Christ, you also. The also is referring to Gentiles are, are participating and being included in something that wasn't always true. They used to be outsiders. They used to not be in a place of blessing or favor or advantage. But now, in Christ, you also, even you Gentiles, and he says, are being built together into a dwelling place. The dwelling place is, is the church. It's Christ's body over which he is head. So even Gentiles are included in this body, in this church, in this one new man, which is ours because of Christ. And he also said that we are being built together into that dwelling place. For God by the Spirit. The building together is what we saw in chapter 2. Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets' teaching. And I take that as New Testament prophets. The apostles and the New Testament prophets that are proclaiming this, this mystery aspect of the gospel that was not known prior to that declaration. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read it all together. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he's obviously getting ready to say something, but he doesn't actually get around to saying it until verse 14, which reads... I bow my knees before the Father. And then the rest of chapter 3, you're going to find out he's praying for them. So he's praying for the Gentiles because they are now included in this place of favor and advantage. Also, along with Jews who have long enjoyed favor and advantage and insider status. But now Gentiles are enjoying it too. And for that reason, Paul prays for them that they would grasp and appreciate and praise and give thanks to God for all that he's doing for Gentiles too in Christ together with those Jews. So to accomplish all this, Paul takes a rabbit trail in order for his readers to appreciate the substance of the prayer, which picks up in verse 14, they need to, uh, to know the magnificence of the mystery you can't appreciate the prayers of Paul unless you understand the ministry of Paul, the message of Paul, what Paul was entrusted with. Another way to put it, Paul reviews the origin and content of his ministry so the Gentiles will understand why he prays for them and what he prays for them. If we... If we are arrogant and take for granted that we were ever included in God's marvelous plan of salvation, we won't appreciate Paul's prayer, nor will we appreciate Paul's ministry and message. Because we just assumed, well, yeah, of course. But Paul's like, that's not the case. You need to fully grasp. You need to fall on your knees and give thanks to God for what he has done for us as Gentiles. That's the point. So it looks like this. Paul's rabbit trail says, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, that admittedly is complex. There's lots of moving pieces, and they all fit together quite nicely. So to start at any one spot, it kind of it has the expectation that you understand all the other pieces. So it's hard to know... It's like, where do you start on this apple, this piece of fruit? Where's, where's the best place to start? I'm going to start towards the beginning where Paul makes the statement. The stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul says, God has extended a grace to me, but this grace that was given to me is for you. It's for Gentiles. Paul calls it a stewardship. That is, it's entrusted to me, it's a responsibility, it's not an ownership of God's grace, it's a stewardship. He dispenses what was given to him. He's the middleman on some level. Paul's given this grace as a stewardship that he means to give to Gentiles. That's how he starts off. He repeats that same basic concept at the end in verse 7 when he says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So here he talks about the stewardship of God's grace. Here he talks about the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. So two times Paul talks about, I was given grace, but this grace isn't for me. It doesn't stop with me. It's a gift given to me to give to you. It's a stewardship entrusted to me to give to you. This grace is the gospel. It's good news. It's not a message of condemnation. It's not a message of judgment. It's a, it's a good news message. It has we, we know it centers on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the heart of this message. So this, this gift and stewardship of grace, which is the gospel, is given to Paul to give to Gentiles. Now, in the middle of that, between those two bookends, in the middle, you've got three times Paul talks about a mystery. Three times he talks about a mystery. We've talked about a mystery several times now already in Ephesians. I'm going to go through uh, probably, it's roughly three main ideas about the relationship between gospel and mystery. By the way, this fits, I mean, I could hardly time it, which I didn't. God times this stuff. This fits so well with Sunday school, where, the, where we're at in Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council getting, to get, getting together to, uh, to, to declare what is the gospel? What is it that they're declaring to Gentiles? So I'm going to start off with this, ter this sentence. Gospel and mystery are not equivalent words. They, they're not completely interchangeable. They're not synonymous. Just because he uses the word mystery three times, he's not necessarily saying exactly what he's saying when he talks about the gospel. There is a relationship, 
but they're not equivalent. They're not the same thing. They're not two different words for exactly the same thing. That is not true. That's what I hope to explain to you. So that you, because if we, full, if we really grasp and appreciate the mystery, uh, that ought to give reason to come praise and glorify our God. That he's extended the mystery of the gospel to the likes of us. The second statement. Gospel is the more comprehensive term. Mystery is a hidden feature of the gospel. So the big term is gospel. Mystery is a hidden component, a hidden feature contained inside the gospel. But the gospel is bigger than that. We've always had the gospel. We haven't always had the mystery, which is very clear by what Paul says. In verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So the mystery was not known to the patriarchs in Genesis. The mystery was not known to Moses and Aaron when they received the law and declared it to the people of Israel. The mystery was not made known to the kings or the priests or the prophets. They didn't know about the mystery, but they did know the gospel. They knew the gospel, not the mystery. He's very clear. It wasn't made known to the sons of, of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And I've got the Colossians reference on there because it's very clear that there's a, a line of demarcation, a, a, delineate, or a, a separation between they had the gospel and then all of a sudden with the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament, they have the mystery, which they didn't have before. It wasn't known, but they have it now. So it looks something like this. The gospel was promised and preached long before the mystery was made known. Example number one. Adam and Eve were promised the gospel, but they weren't promised the mystery. The very first declaration of the gospel in all the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. In Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to guess it's minutes or hours. Well, it's got to be hours because they'd taken time to sew fig leaves together. Hours after they had sinned, the gospel is proclaimed for the very first time. The Lord says, there's going to come one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. He will be bruised. You will strike his heel. He will die on a cross. That's hidden in there only because we know it as we see that story played out. But that's the gospel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve were declared the gospel, but they know nothing of the mystery. Second example. Abraham was promised the gospel, but Abraham knew nothing of the mystery. The gospel looks like this. Genesis chapter 12. The Lord says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel, declared to Abram, that your seed is going to be a blessing not only to you and your family, but to all the nations of the earth. He's going to be the, 
the person that divides those who are blessed and those who are judged. And we see that fulfilled, again, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in Genesis. Paul, makes, Paul explains and unpacks that in Galatians. The seed that's promised here, it's not Isaac. It's not in Isaac all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's in the seed, Christ, Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. All nations of the earth will be blessed by virtue of their faith in Christ. So to Abram, Abraham, he was promised the gospel, but not the mystery. Isaiah preached the gospel, but Isaiah didn't preach the mystery. Now, we were in Isaiah before we were, in, we were in Ephesians, and we were there a good long while. So I could cite lots of examples in Isaiah where the gospel was preached, but probably the clearest, easiest example that Isaiah preached the gospel is in chapter 52 and verse 7. How beautiful are, upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the gospel. Good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the gospel. It's a gospel promising peace, happiness, salvation, declaring to Zion, declaring to the people of God, your God reigns. That's the gospel. The gospel is our God reigns. The gospel is that all that was ever tarnished and lost by sin will be reclaimed by Christ. We sing about that at Christmas time when we sing Joy to the World. Far as the curse is found, the gospel is going to reclaim it all. That's the gospel. It's good news. God has not abandoned his people or his creation to sin. He reclaims it all. That's the gospel. But it's not the mystery. John the baptizer preached the gospel, but John the baptizer didn't preach the mystery. And maybe more surprising than that, is that Jesus preached the gospel, but Jesus never preached the mystery. He preached the gospel. He didn't preach the mystery. Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 836. The gospel's all over the four gospels of our New Testament. Mark chapter 1, so it's the second gospel of the New Testament. John the Baptist is preaching the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel. But they're not preaching the mystery. Mark's gospel begins this way. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So again, here's another example of Isaiah preaching the gospel. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then we kind of wrap up what happens to John. Skip over to verse 14. Verse 14 says, Mark chapter 1, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying exactly what John said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist came preaching the gospel. 
Jesus came preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming to reclaim what is his. He's coming to redeem and restore and to save. And it's what Isaiah talked about. Peace and happiness and God coming to, our, coming to Zion. That's the gospel. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it, but they didn't preach the mystery. What is the mystery component? contained inside the gospel that had been hidden and now is being revealed. Verse 6, Paul writes, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There's an essential equality in the gospel that they didn't know about. All through the Old Testament, we talked about it in Sunday school. I mean, all through those long centuries, if a Gentile wanted to, to worship the living God who created the heavens and the earth, he had to become like a Jew. He had to put himself under the law of Moses. He had to be a proselyte. But all of a sudden, under the terms of the new covenant, there's an equality that a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew. Because now they have an equal status under the terms of the new covenant. That's the mystery aspect of the gospel. Hitherto unknown. They'd always known Gentiles would be blessed. Abraham was promised, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But not as equals. Not as one and the same in some sense within Christ, this new body, this thing called the church. They didn't know that. That's the mystery component hidden inside the gospel. But let's back up and talk about this mystery. Go back. We've gone a little bit too far. Let's back up again. Back in verse 2, Paul says, Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. It was hidden before, not known by all those, all those patriarchs, all those old covenant believers. It was revealed to me, Paul says, it was made known to me by revelation. Paul didn't discover the mystery. Paul didn't discover what nobody else figured out how to discover. That's what we do, you know, in life and culture. Scientists, archaeologists, people discover things. They work hard. They think about it. They trial and error, and, and they go through these processes. And, and eventually, sometimes, if, if they're fortunate, they discover something. And they're like, I've discovered what we've been looking for. Paul didn't discover the mystery. The mystery was revealed to Paul. That's by direct revelation from God. God revealed what had been hidden. It would have been impossible to know this until God chose to reveal it. This idea of an equality between Gentiles and Jews in the New Covenant. When did Paul receive this revelation? When was it made known to him so that now he can write about it as he does so often. I'm going to point us to two passages. One is Galatians. I'm going to show that one on the screen, but it's just a couple pages back in your Bible. The other one is going to be in Acts chapter 26, and I probably will have you turn to Acts 26. So if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 935. Acts is just a few books back, before Ephesians is Galatians, before Galatians is First and Second Corinthians, before Corinthians is Romans, and before Romans is Acts. So Acts is after the four Gospels, before Romans, 
and it's very nearly the end of Acts chapter 26. But first, look at what Paul says to the Galatians. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He wasn't just looking for the gospel. He wasn't searching for something. It was revealed to him when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. Verse 14. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. That sounds just like what Paul started off saying in Ephesians chapter 3. I received something and it's for you. Paul says... God was called me by his grace, set me apart, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's a stewardship I've received, a stewardship of God's grace that I'm preaching to you. It's not given to me alone. It's given to me to pass on to Gentiles. This is what was revealed to me. Whoops. Well, okay, that's right. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul's... Uh, giving testimony, he's going to wind up in Rome. But before he gets to Rome, he gives his life story, his testimony before King Agrippa. Festus is there as well. So in Acts chapter 26, it reads like this, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. Verse 13. At midday, O king, 
I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and, and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I'm at verse 16, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and verse 16 is very difficult to grasp what he's saying. So I'm going to give you verse 16 from the New King James Version up on the screen. In verse 16, Paul says, Jesus says to Paul, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Again, it's completely consistent with what Paul wrote to the, to the Ephesians. I've received a stewardship of God's grace, a gift of God's grace for you. That's what Paul, that's what Paul recounted in Galatians chapter 1. I've received grace for you. And now... In verse 16, Christ says, I'm going to reveal other things to you, and you're to pass it on to the Gentiles. It's not just for you, it's to be passed on. It's for others. Uh, I guess I could keep reading. Verse 17 says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul receives grace, a stewardship, a gift, a gospel, the mystery, and he passes it on to the Gentiles. There's an applied principle in this. The applied principle is this. Has it ever grasped your attention that whatever it is you've received from God, it really wasn't just for you, it's meant to be passed on? Whatever your gifts, talents, abilities, interests are, it was never meant to stop with you. If God's only goal is to populate the kingdom of heaven with his own people, then as soon as we're saved, we could be gone. But whatever it is we've, re we've received from God, whatever gift of grace I've received, whatever gift of grace you've received is a stewardship that is meant for others. It's meant to be passed on. You know, there's an Old Testament story, which this isn't in my notes, so I probably shouldn't go down that rabbit trail. But it's the story where the Assyrian army is encamped around Jerusalem, and the Lord slays the Assyrian army, and some lepers wake up in the morning. They don't know anybody's been slain, but they're like, look, we're going to die one way or the other. We may as well enjoy a good last meal. Let's surrender to the Babylonians. Or maybe it was the Babylonians. I think it was the Assyrian. Assyrians? Okay, it was the Assyrians. Let's just surrender to the Assyrians. And they find out everybody's dead. And they're like, I mean, they're hoping for one good last meal. They're like, one good last meal? It's all ours. It's all ours. This is better than we could possibly imagine. And then they're struck with guilt. Maybe it's not just for us. Maybe we should let them know inside Jerusalem. They need, the, they need to know this too. Maybe what God has given to us as a church to you as an individual. It was never meant to stop with you. Just like Paul, it was meant to be passed on to others. I think that's the record of Scripture. It's a good point of application. Back to Ephesians. Paul says when you read this, 
You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul's like, I'm not the only one that had the mystery component revealed to me. I'm not the only one. I would say in some sense Paul was the primary one. I mean, we know more about what Paul wrote regarding the mystery than any other writer of Scripture. So perhaps other writer or other apostles knew as much, but they didn't write about it in God's providential plan. But it was revealed the same way to holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Not discovered, revealed. Abraham is not at fault because he didn't know the mystery. Isaiah is not at fault because he didn't know the mystery. It wasn't revealed. But it was revealed to the apostles. Peter is a great example in Acts chapter 10 and 11, which we were talking about in Sunday school. I'm doing great on time, so turn to Acts chapter 11. We'll look at Peter's recounting of his experience in Acts chapter 11, page 919 in your pew Bible. This is in Acts chapter 10... Peter goes to a Gentile's house and he, he preaches the gospel to them. And Peter, my contention is in Scripture, Peter's the most interrupted man in all the Bible. Like if you say, who gets interrupted in the Bible? Peter, more than anybody else, gets interrupted. He gets interrupted by Christ. He gets interrupted by other disciples. He gets interrupted by God. Uh, he gets interrupted in, when he goes to preach to Cornelius. He gets interrupted by God and the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit falls on these people and Peter's not even done preaching. Like if that were to happen here, it'd be a disaster because I've still got a little bit to say. But that's what happens. So in Acts chapter 11, uh, the Gentile's household comes to faith in Christ and then the saints, the church in Jerusalem is like, I mean, a really pernicious rumor has started that you went and spent time with Gentiles. Uh, that doesn't look good. Uh, Gentiles aren't equal. They're not the same. Uh, you've crossed a line. Uh, that can't be good. And so Peter explains himself in Acts chapter 11. It goes like this. Verse 1. Acts 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not on your life, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, I love beholds in Scripture. I lament a Bible version that doesn't use the word behold and just says look. It's not just look. It's, it's I mean, you don't want to miss the beholds of the Bible. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were and sent to me from Caesarea. 
And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me. And we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. It, it's worse than, as he began to speak, he wasn't even halfway through his message. As he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, which is interesting because we just talked about a silence in Acts chapter 15. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to these Gentiles. And they fell silent. They received the same promise. They're shares of what we already are, have participated in. And they did it without pledging to the law of Moses. With, without observing the customs of Moses or our traditions. They did it without circumcision. They received... The wonderful promise we've been waiting centuries for without any, of, without any of Mosaic law accompanying it. So, what are your comments and questions about the gospel, about the mystery? Lori. Explain the mystery of the gospel and expecting one thing and God Was there, yes. So the question is, uh, was... Was the gospel clearly understood in the Old Testament? No. It was there, but it was not clearly understood. Uh, I don't know that anybody clearly understands how exactly God will fulfill his word until he does. I think that's true. But it was there. It was revealed. They just didn't understand, you know, how is it that when Isaiah talks about Basically, the servant of the Lord, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You know, he lays down his life for the sheep. Do they understand that the, the Lord's Messiah is going to die on the cross? No, they don't understand that. It's there. So the gospel was preached, but no. Did they fully understand it? No. But it was there. The mystery was never there. Uh, no, it's not that the gospel goes to Gentiles is that there's an equality that is achieved by the gospel going to Gentiles because they knew the gospel would go to Gentiles. That's the gospel. The gospel was never just for Israel. They've always known the gospel would go to all the nations of the earth. Isaiah talks about it all the time. The gospel is going to go to all the nations of the earth. That's the gospel. They always knew that. But that Gentiles would be equal heirs, equal in the body, you know, equal in this new man? No, they had no idea that could possibly happen. In fact, part of the mystery is that as Gentiles are grafted in to this terrific place of advantage, it's at the expense of Israel being grafted out. And they'll be grafted back in later. So it's through, it's through Israel's unbelief that Gentiles receive all these advantages. It's through the Gentiles' belief that Jews eventually will also believe. 
And that's all unpacked in Romans 11. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Rick. I don't see anything more than the gospel there. I mean, I guess you could look back, you know, if you want to look back and say, I don't know that there's an equality in there, because will the gospel attract people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue? That's always been the gospel. And so Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up, will, will draw all men to myself. Yeah, that's, that's consistent with what Isaiah said. That's consistent with, with what was promised Abraham. But the equality aspect, it's the equality aspect that, that was not known and could not be known until God revealed it. It's the equality aspect that's the earth-shattering difference maker, Cindy. Right, and male are still male, female are still female, slave are still slave, free are still free. But in Christ, there's an equality, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Our, the basis of our salvation is, is exactly the same. It's faith in Christ. Nothing more is required of a Jew, nothing less is required of a Gentile. Faith in Christ, by faith in Christ... Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The basis of salvation is always exactly the same. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Um, well, I don't know. I could hint at it now, but I'm not sure it would help. It might create more problems than not. Anyone else? I mean, you've got this aspect... It's that Gentiles are not just heirs, not just, we, not just Gentiles ride the coattails of Israel. They're fellow heirs. They're members of the same body. I'll tell you, I mean, I don't know how you would do it exactly because I haven't thought about it that hard. But Warren Wearsby, uh, who passed away a few years ago, he wrote a, a whole set of new, well, actually, I don't know that he covered all the Old Testament, but he wrote a lot of commentaries. And I don't know if he intended from the very beginning this is how it would turn out or not. But he, all his commentary started off with a be something. Be, and he put in a verb. I mean, so, and I didn't look it up recently, so I can't even give you some examples. But all of Warren Wearsby's commentaries are be something. Ephesians, one of the ways, one of the words you could put in there is somehow that word together needs to be in there. I... You are, it will be amazing to you, I think, if you're amazed like I am. Maybe I'm easily amazed or amused. I'm not sure. It is amazing the emphasis Paul puts on togetherness in Ephesians. And I will demonstrate it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And a lot of it is lost because in our English Bibles, it, it kind of obscures how much togetherness is the point? So I'm kind of a little bit closer to Hannah's position here that, that when we are not worshiping together, it is, to, it is our detriment. It is detrimental to what we are as a church. We ought to be together. And by that I mean Jews and Gentiles. I mean, I don't care whether you are ecstatic about the election or devastated by the election, that pales in comparison to what we have together. I don't care whether you're ecstatic about whatever your interest is, or you could care less about that interest. 
One reason why you don't want to miss being together with God's people is because you will never have anything more in common than when you gather together in Christ's name. And if there isn't peace in our togetherness, we don't know what the gospel is. Because he died to bring us together. And our hope is in him, not in anything else. And if they can bridge those, those divisions in, in the New Testament, are you kidding me? What we have to deal with in the melting pot of America is child's play. But what's so disappointing is all it took was a little bit of a COVID-19 to divide us on all kinds of different perspectives. And that's kind of disappointing. Uh, let's then be dismissed in prayer.